1968, something besides the assembly line public motor and assembly line cars was happening in Detroit, USA. There was a rock and roll war, and Detroit's most committed soldiers were the MC5 and the Stooges. Dennis Thompson of the Motor City Five. Those days you had, you had civil rights, you had uh, sexual revolution, you had drug movement, you had the uh, female liberation movement, the riots, and war in Vietnam. You had too much. Too much happening at one time. <clears throat> Stooges and the Five were bands that fronted the, uh, the assault for the people that stood up the alternative way of thinking at that period of time, which was anti-war, pro-change, you know, pro-growth. And needless to say, we met a lot of resistance because of that. Uh, resistance with the law, resistance within our own community, our own age groups, our own peers. <clears throat> but we knew all along that what we were doing was uh, righteous and was correct, felt good, and the people really responded to it in a very positive way, so we carried on. And we went through, both of our bands went through a lot of trauma to pull off what we pulled off.
round up the Stooges. Just went through basic growing uh, pains, ripped off by this person, this management, this and that, worked their way through, guys were banned to all kind of drug bullshit and what. And now you see what's left. I'm here. Two guys are dead, two guys played days are dead. Other guys. now 1974 and a different battleground, Sydney, Australia. But the same world war was being fought by Radio Birdman. Ron Keeley, Warwick Gilbert, Chris Mazurek, Pip Hoyle, guitarist Dennis Tech and singer Rob Younger. Tech, a medical student, had grown up in Detroit, had been inspired by the MC5 and the Stooges. Younger and the others were amongst the very few in Australia who discovered the music. But as Chris Mazurek recalled, Birdman's influences were always Detroit Plus. The Dolls and the Stooges and MC5 and the Blue Oyster Cult and Darlin' Jeffries and Jan and Dean. Any number of things. I mean, and also the new thing at the time was really obscure 60s psychedelia. In the early days, Radio Birdman used to open their shows with Walk Don't Run, a version inspired by the Pink Fairies from England.
band would play anywhere they could set up, but invitations were few and far between. Mostly a small room, eventually called the Oxford Funhouse, and a handful of private parties. But the select number of people who knew and followed Radio Birdman truly believed they were very special. Even the best band in the world. Buddy people had lampshades and shelves with books on them and all that sort of stuff laying around in the little room they were playing in. Rob Younger crawling along the floor and Dennis Tech jumping on him. And it wasn't they had no respect for what was in the house, it's just they didn't even know it existed. And I was like, cringing, thinking, what are they going to do? And all of a sudden, I saw the light as well. Walking out of the funhouse used to be extraordinary because you'd walk out and you'd just be electric. I mean, you'd sort of, your ears would be ringing, you'd be sort of quite numb but floating at the same time. You're walking down Oxford Street. I mean, you often used to walk all the way home simply because you couldn't stop. It's just a wonderful feeling and an incredible calm too. I mean, it's, yeah, funhouse was good. Maybe a hundred people by then, but by the time it, it closed down, five and a half months later, they were getting about 400, which was more than capacity, you know. That was just jam-packed and people had to stand on t tables and chairs and stuff, you know, just because there was no room. And people would be packed up the stairs and couldn't get anything. If you, if you got too hot, which you always did, you had to wring your shirt out. you climb out the window and stand on the awning above Taylor Square.
most remarkable thing about the Funhouse that I can remember is that, and even though it only held, you know, 300 people at the very most, um, it, re it retained that, that, uh, that urgency, you know, that sense of everyone there having a good time, everyone there really, you know, fighting for themselves. It was 1977, and Radio Birdman were being hailed by many as the only true rock and roll band in Australia. Others claimed they were fascist and ultra-negative, messy, heavy metal. Very few bands have polarized opinion between extreme love and loathing. The effect upon the band was to form a closed circle consisting of themselves and a few close friends. a very strong comradeship and um, and we didn't really we didn't really seem to try to figure out what it was all about we didn't um, well we weren't actively trying to change anything all, all that we ever did was have a single goal in mind and that was to to be Radio Birdman and if that took refusing to comply with you know, the restrictions that were imposed on other bands. And if it meant that we were divorced from everything else, well, that was too bad for everyone. The first 
no holes barred band, you see. They play what they wanted. They didn't tone down for anyone. If they were asked to turn down, turn it down, they wouldn't do it. And that was it. They played it for their audience. If the audience was five people, they still played it as if it was for a hundred people. Birdman did not tour as such. They blitzkrieged. Their record producer, Charles Fisher, was involved in the planning. I mean, the, the blitzkriegs were almost forced on us. I mean, in those days, we just couldn't get work. The, the, we couldn't go through the straight agencies. We couldn't go into the straight venues. Um, nobody wanted to know. As, as a result, we had to go directly to venues, find venues that would take us. Because Dennis was still at university, we could, we could only play very pre-planned periods of time. And we condensed, like, literally a few months' exposure down to about ten days. That's how they came up with the term Blitzkrieg. Blitzkriegs also gave Birdman's critics an excuse to hang the band with a fascist tag. And the fascist overtones came about because we had a symbol, we had um, something of a uniform that we wore. Um, yeah, Dennis talked about that in his interview. He said this, he was talking about accusations of Nazism, and he said this woman just rushed on stage and tore the flag down and was screaming at the top of the lungs something about the Jews, and he couldn't believe it. He said she was quite, un quite unreal. A lot of people used to think they were fascists because of that flag and because of the uniforms they had, which people had thought bore a similarity to SS uniforms. I mean, they were not at all fascists, nowhere in the world, and they got accused of so many damn times. They didn't want other people to go and dress like them or look like them or anything. I mean, it was just unity. It was, we are one. <laughs> the band tended toward fascism. I don't agree with that. The reactions to that really stunned them didn't expect to be taken as Nazis. They definitely wanted to shock him. While controversy raged around the band in Australia, the Birdman phenomenon was attracting international attention and an offer Sire Records in America. Well, the, the deal with Sire kind of just came out of the blue. It wasn't anything we chased. We, we had a record out. We had an al album out which we were distributing independently, again, because we couldn't... We tried through the majors and we couldn't get a distribution deal. Seymour Stein came to Australia to sign up the Saints, who had had 
uh, a lot of rave reviews for Stranded through the English press. He went down to an Oxford Tavern gig, uh, he danced on the tables, he just loved everything, he followed the band around for two or three shows and came up and just offered the deal for us. But even as Radio Birdman geared up to take on the world, Dennis Tech's commitment to his medical studies was closing in on the band's future. Um, as it became more successful, the other, the other guys were totally interested in the musical side, which to him was secondary to his medicine. And obviously the pressure of, if I leave the band, there's no European tour, there's no nothing. It was almost like, well, I've got, I've got to continue for the sake of the others. Dennis appeared to be um, a man with two types of personalities. One was um, a university persona, which is very serious and studious, and the other was a form of bad craziness persona, and, um, and they'd often overlap. Hard to tell what he was like most of the times. Radio Birdman left for England in early 1978. They recorded an album at Rockfield Studios in Wales, then toured England and Europe with the Flaming Groovies. Then it was time for Dennis Tech to resume medicine. Tension within the band had reached a peak and Birdman broke up. While the album, later to be called Living Eyes, sat in the vaults till 1981, Warwick Gilbert and Chris Masaryk formed the Hitmen. Dennis Tech launched several one-off and occasional bands. Rob Younger formed the other side. But none could escape their radio Birdman fame and reputation. Birdman fans and hordes of newcomers saw the new bands, but most, it seemed, were hoping for a replay of the band they loved the best. Meanwhile, an onslaught of hard rock bands, Rose Tattoo, The Angels, Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil among them, with stuff five pop charts and pack halls with excitable crowds. John Brewster, Angels guitarist. I think in some ways Birdman probably uh, had something to do with that. The Angels may have taken over from that. Probably pulled a lot of Radio Birdman people. I don't know. But we certainly... Uh, in our own way, got the same kind of an intensity. They're probably the the real, the true cult band. They're, what looked like a cult thing with the Angels was was in a far bigger proportion. Then, in early 1981, three years the Radio Birdman had disbanded, Dennis Tech asked Rob Younger and Warwick Gilbert if they were available for a short Australian tour with Dennis Thompson, ex-MC5, 
and Ron Ashton, ex-studio. I met Dennis Tant about five years ago at one of my, my brother's band. He's playing in the library and uh, saw this guy dancing in the street radius and what. So he came up to me and said, hi, I'm Dennis Tant. I've been a fan of music for a long time. He seemed like a nice guy, so exchanged numbers and what. He called me back a couple days later. We got together and went out and had the rain start talking. So every time he came back from Australia, he put me up. You know, exchanged uh, different contacts and what. So, so just met, I met him in a bar. I met Dennis through Ron. And uh, we jammed together a few times. And we said that one day in the future we would get together and play. And uh, calls it, come on now, how about a little quickie tour of Australia, you know. The five became the new race, and thousands upon thousands more than have ever seen Radio Birdman packed out every pub and hall the band played. Because of the Radio Birdman thing, and probably a lot of kids at 18, 19, and 20 now who were too young to get into Birdman, but had heard all about it, the curiosity, and they just came everywhere to see the new race. They came to see... Um, a hard-hitting, loud, controversial rock and roll band. And that's what they saw. The new race. A legend. They came on as a legend. Word of mouth. That's all it was. Nothing else. It wasn't always just the band. It was the audience. And it was the people around. It was the reactions of the people watching the band play. And it was never the band up here and us there. It was like everyone. And it was... Hype. Nothing else around had anything to do with us. And I think that's why I'd, the Radio Birdman vibe did come out when I saw the new race. And I was bloody happy to see people who'd only heard about them cheering. It was more like a good time for me. There's something really desperate about a lot of Radio Birdman gigs that wasn't there with this new race. Dennis Thompson of the new race. But this band's approach is not a negative approach at all. There's no politics involved, there's no religion involved, there's no uh, cults, you know, hipness and ego, like that sort of thing involved. It's just pure full bore, red line, uh, enthusiasm, fun. The new race was a temporary entity. It existed for six weeks, drew 12,000 people, and played 14 gigs. What remains is a live album, a new legend, and regret that this band, like Radio Birdman, the MC5 and the Stooges before them, broke up while there are still so many people who wanted to these rock and roll soldiers keep fighting and win. It's too bad. It's too bad this band's gonna break up. That's the best way to write it. Just too bad. Underlines and exclamation points. Capital letters. Rock and Roll Soldiers featured the voices and reminiscences of Radio Birdman friends and past associates. They included Jules Normington, Paul Gearside, Vivian and Tim Johnston, Felicity Surtees, Charles Fisher, Michael McMartin and Steve Copeland. Plus special guest appearances by Dennis Thompson, Ron Ashton, Chris Mazowick and John Brewster.